Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 676 with my guest, Michael Easter. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin, and yes, you're listening to uh, the Mental Illness Happy Hour. This is a, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, uh, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. And this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Last week, I gave a shout out, a paid shout out to a listener who does photography. And I forgot to mention that her photography is beautiful. Her name is Claire Goldstein. And I'm going to include uh, a link to her photography. And it's fabphotog.com. I'll put it in the show notes and it's spelled P-H-A-B-P-H-O-T-O-G. That's fabphotog.com. So uh, check her stuff out. This is, this is an email I got from uh, a licensed clinical social worker uh, and she's in Texas and her name is Michelle. And uh, she wrote me that I'm honestly sending this message to validate myself and others in the social work profession. It's obviously not your fault what guests say. I'm listening to episode 593 with Beth Lapidus. She spoke of a mentor slash previous teacher. She said that this woman is a, quote, licensed went-to-Yale therapist, like full-on, dot, 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 not a social worker, unquote. I just want to say that social workers who get fully licensed with the title licensed clinical social workers uh, are real therapists. We can also work in a vast variety of roles. We actually bring incredible knowledge and skill set. So we are pretty rad and bring a lot to the table. Quite a few things other mental health professionals cannot because it's not uh, because It's just not in their schooling, training, or scope of practice. I'm very proud to be an LCSW and worked my ass off to get here. Otherwise, love your podcast and thank you for keeping it. Uh, P.S. Forgot to throw in there. I don't give a shit if this woman she's referring to went to Yale. I feel like that's such a toxic, stuffy thing to say. I went to San Diego State. They have one of the best social work programs. I received a wonderful education. Okay, I'll end there. Happy holidays. And thank you for that, Michelle. I always want to hear your your feedback. And uh, by the way, the new survey that we created, which is called Comment on Someone's Survey, could also be comment, commenting on a particular episode of the podcast. It doesn't have to be uh, on somebody's surveys. And if you've never taken a survey, go to our website, metalpod.com, and then you can find in the, uh, what the fuck is it called? Not the toolbar. The bookmark bar. Is that what it's called? No, whatever. Oh, my God. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Ryan. And uh, he struggles with depression and a snapshot from his life. He writes, they say exercise helps depression. I'm terrified of how much more depressed I could get if I wasn't working out 90 minutes a day. Buddy, I've been there. I've been there where I played, played hockey for 90 minutes and no 
feeling of endorphins afterwards. And that is a shitty, shitty place to be. I'm sorry that, that, uh, that you're feeling that way. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so important to try a variety of things. And I'm not saying you're not. I don't know your full story. But exercise for me is just one of the things that I have to do just to get to the starting line. You know, for me, I have to take meds. I got to practice spirituality, prayer, meditation, going to support group meetings, trying to be of service, opening up when I don't want to, listening when the phone rings and I don't want to pick it up and I just want to isolate. I mean, those are those are just some of the things. And other things that, that have worked for people, some of them have not worked for me, um, but every person's different, is transcranial magnetic stimulation, neurofeedback, um, ketamine treatments, uh, psychedelics. So I'm, I'm a big believer in just throwing a lot of stuff against the wall and seeing seeing what sticks. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, Emissary of the Birdmen. And they write, I love the way my boyfriend loves animals. I love the way he can be pissed off and yell about the news or a video game or something. And then five minutes later, he shows me a video of a human being helping helping an animal or vice versa. It tells me excitedly about everything remarkable and emotionally intelligent that species has been known to do. I love how when I wake up in the morning, he is still up from the night before and he tells me about all the nocturnal animals he has seen and interacted with all night. He is friends with the skunks and raccoons. He helped a baby skunk get a box off its head a few weeks ago, and he didn't get sprayed. Love it. Thank you for that. This is from the comment on someone's survey, and this is filled out by Sophia, and she writes, this is a response to the latest interview with Dr. Sarah Michaud. I've been in therapy for about 15 years, self-harm from the ages of 12 to 21, and have always identified as having severe anxiety. I'm high-functioning, climbing the career ladder for 30 years now, and it has only struck me now that perhaps the anxiety I keep talking about is actually misplaced anger and rage. I also have a tumultuous relationship with my mother as an only child and have worked through putting boundaries in place after a life of codependency and meshment and not being able to defend myself as a child and adult. Shame, guilt, and people-pleasing become the natural default, which leads to the resentment and anger cycle. Dr. Sarah references this 37 minutes into the podcast, and I believe internalized anger is definitely something that needs to be explored. Instead of outward aggression, what happens when you internalize it for years and years, and what does it do to our central nervous system? Thank you for that, and... That makes total sense to me. They say uh, also that uh, anger turned inwards is uh, or can lead to depression. But yeah, I think the, the roots of anxiety can be really complex and seemingly unrelated. And one of the, the reasons why I'm such a big fan of therapy and support groups and processing and talking about it is it's really hard to make sense of it until we begin 
talking about it, having to find the words, and actually whether it's journaling or therapy or support groups, having to form a sentence about what we're feeling can often be the pathway to understanding it better and then finding tools to try. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey, and this is <laughs> filled out by uh, an 18-year-old who calls uh, themselves uh, the Lesser Sylvia Plath with a PTSD diagnosis. Uh, why were you hospitalized, severe PTSD, and a suicide attempt? Describe your experience. I came in voluntarily, and I was scared as all hell. I hadn't brushed my teeth or washed my face in three days, hadn't slept in 72 hours, and fully convinced that the hanging attempt I'd just tried was showing on me. My therapist, best friends, and residence hall director convinced me to go after I got pissed when the bedsheet fell and called campus police. So I went in an Uber and stared out the window the whole way there. Boy, that is such, such a vivid and profound image. Uh, I was completely and utterly exhausted. My PTSD had become unbearable to live with, and I knew I needed help. I was just afraid of it. The paranoia, nightmares, flashbacks, constant panic attacks, and hypervigilance was something I couldn't handle anymore. The pain was rotting me from the inside out. I felt so weak and small, and once I was taken behind the doors, reading, quote, a loper's warning, unquote, was when I knew it was real. I'd never ever heard the word elopers used other than for running away and getting married, but I guess, uh, yeah, elopers can also apply to people escaping, I guess. The worst part was the check-in process. I was afraid, shameful, guilty, and angry, and just wanted to die, and it showed. My therapist sat with me, qualifying answers I gave during the assessment. I asked the therapist, am I crazy? She told me that I wasn't, but I felt crazy. It took a total of six hours to check me in. The night nurse asked me if I was ready to sleep once she took me to the ward, and I told her no, and that I was scared to sleep. The walk got way quieter after that. I was in the hospital for a total of eight days. I only did group therapy so I could leave faster but it helped. My meds were stabilized and I felt as if I could say anything I wanted to for the first time in my life. I met other people with PTSD for the first time and that helped me so much in accepting. I'm currently in a partial hospitalization program and I'm more stabilized than what I once was. I still struggle a ton with my mental illness and PTSD, but it's becoming manageable day by day now. I don't want to go back to the hospital, but if I needed to, I would. Thank you for that. And I just want to give you a high five on accepting the reality of your situation and not staying stuck and wishing it were different, but saying, I need help. And interestingly, she, uh, I think it's a she, 
came here from a, a 2014 episode uh, with Clint Malarchuk. If you've never listened to that episode, it is fucking fascinating. Clint was an NHL goalie who experienced a really traumatic injury while playing. And it, there's clips of it online um, because it happened in a broadcasted NHL game. But he took a skate to the neck and it opened his jugular vein and he almost died and stuffed all of the trauma of that for years. Fascinating episode. Uh we are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. And finally, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mere Muse. And I believe we've read uh, surveys from her before. Uh, share an awful moment or two from your life. And she writes, my mom is developing dementia. Yesterday, we took her a Christmas present. It was some of her favorite chips from her hometown that we had shipped in. They were in a huge bag with tissue paper covering them. She opened the gift three times over the afternoon, each time forgetting she opened it, and each time delighted to see the bag of chips. My consciousness might be disintegrating. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> the greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is very hard to heal and dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Michael Easter. You're a uh, professor at UNLV, a journalist. Uh, you teach journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, you're an author. You, uh, you got a book out called Scarcity Brain. Uh, and when your publicist reached out, I was like, that is a topic that I have been preaching from my soapbox about for so long, the cult of more. Yeah. We live in a culture That's of more. A culture and we can't even see it. And it's more of so many things. I think, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. So in the book, I, I really look at, um, you know, what do we want more of and, to me, the things that we tend to crave and overdo today um, are things that would have given us a survival advantage in the past. So it's sort of more woven, food, more, more food, shelter, more stuff, uh, more information, more. I mean, more, all these things that helped us survive. And um, that used to serve us in the past when all these things were scarce and hard to find. Right. It was always hard to find food. Right. If you could get more tools, that probably gave you a survival advantage. If you could get more status, more influence over others, that would give you a survival advantage. If you could accumulate more information, that would give you a survival advantage. But the difference is that we still have these ancient brains and we live in a world now where we can satisfy that craving that we have for more all the time. I mean, each one of those things like food, we're surrounded in food now. Right. Information. The average person today takes in more information than a person 700 years ago would have taken in in their entire life. Think about status. Right. We've we live in a world where status is literally quantified on apps and the number of friends that you have, the number of likes you get, 
um, the amount of parent people we experience in our life. And so we just live in very different environments where this drive we have for more. Well, the nice thing is Instagram puts it all on one, all in one nice little package. One nice little package to yes. go in there and drive yourself crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So go ahead. You were, you were saying. Oh, I, I can't remember that. Yeah. Uh, so what is the talk about the data uh, of this, what you, what you've discovered, people you've talked to. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I look at the book looks at a lot of different ways. Um, basically what we evolved to crave more of and how that gets expressed in modern life, you know, what times were like in the past and what times are like now. So it kind of really depends on what topic you're talking about. Um, but I think the overall theme of the book, it looks at, you know, why can't we get enough? And, Everyone knows that everything's fine in moderation. Then it's like, okay, well, why the hell can't we moderate? <laughs> it does tend to go back to um, our past and this sort of genetic wiring we have. But I also talk about how another thing that's changed is technology has really figured out um, how to drive us into more. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> what got me thinking about this topic in the first place, which is probably relevant, is... Um, so March 2020, pandemic starts, and what do people do? Hoard. Hoard. <laughs> you go to the grocery store, and it's like, it's on. Mm-hmm. I need all the toilet paper, all the hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Give me all the canned food. <laughs> uh, but after that initial like freak out where we all clamor for more, you tend to see that people um, adopt these other behaviors that sort of push them into more. So people gain a significant amount of weight. So people gained a lot of weight. Uh, you saw mindless purchasing spike. So people bought a ton of stuff uh, on and on and on. Screen time spiked. And um, I won- I started thinking about, okay, how do sort of scarcity cues affect our behavior? And to go back to that original question of why can't we moderate? Why are we so bad at it? And uh, one of the, I think, revelations of the book is this uh, idea that I call the scarcity loop. It's this three-part behavior loop that sort of pushes us to repeat these behaviors, quick behaviors that can be fun and rewarding in the short term, but detrimental in the long run. And so I'll tell you how I started thinking about this is that uh, I live in Las Vegas and (laughs) the capital of, (laughs) and that's it. No, so I live in Las Vegas. Um, The, you obviously see a lot of weird things living in Vegas, like very strange things. But the strangest thing to me has always been the slot machines because they're everywhere. They're uh, the entire casino floors, 85% slot machines, but they're in the gas stations, they're in the grocery stores, they're in the airport, they're in just name it. Right. And people play them all the time around the clock. It's like, well, that doesn't make any damn sense because everyone knows the house always wins. So why do people do this? So that's the question. And, uh, through a series of, you know, talk to this person who tells me to talk to this person who tells me to talk to this person. I end up at this casino on the edge of town, except it, uh, it's fully working. It's brand new, but the public isn't welcome in the traditional sense that they are in a casino. So this is a casino laboratory where gambling companies and a bunch of tech companies have united to build a real working casino to study human behavior. And while I'm there, I meet with a guy who designs slot machines and he explains, oh yeah, they work on this three-part system um, that I call the scarcity loop. So it's got opportunity, one, unpredictable rewards, two, and then quick repeatability. 
So opportunity, you have an opportunity to get something of value that will enhance your life. In the case of slot machine, it's money, right? Mm -hmm. Two, unpredictable rewards. You know that you'll get that thing at some point, but you don't know when and you don't know how valuable it's going to be. So with a slot machine, you play a game, you could lose your dollar, you could win $3, you could win $3,000. It's a crazy range of outcomes. And then three, quick repeatability, you can repeat the behavior immediately. Now, <clears throat> why I think this is important is that this system, um, it evolved naturally in the human brain. Uh, it used to help our ancestors find food. So this is why we are attracted to sort of random reward games still today. Um, but then it gets put in slot machines in the 1980s. And when that happens, um, before this, people didn't really play slot machines. It gets put in slot machines in the 1980s with the digitization of slot machines. And slot machines take off. Their revenues increase tenfold. They start going from you know being shoved into corners to taking up all of the casino floors. And people start playing them way more. Like even today. And they're some of the worst odds, correct? Or no? Oh, compared to table games. Yeah. Right. They're some of the worst odds. Um, <clears throat> so today people spend more money on slot machines than we do on books, movies, and music combined. So this is a huge market and a lot of industries notice this. They go, wow, those things are good at getting people to do a dumb behavior over and over and over and over and, you know, ad infinium for a while. And <clears throat> so now when you start looking for this thing, I mean, it's what makes social media work basically a random rewards game, right? It's what makes dating apps work. It's swipe, 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 swipe. Oh my God, I got a match. Swipe, swipe, swipe. It's being put in um, certain financial apps. So apps like Robinhood really leverage quick repeatability. It's, it's such in an evil corporation. Oh. Such have, have, Did you see the expose on yeah. them? Yeah. How they, quote, went bankrupt, but uh, just beyond. And also had the literally pulled straight from a casino, the spinning wheel when you first started, mm -hmm. which regulators went in and were just like, what the hell are you doing with this? Like, no, this is like straight up out of a casino. Right. Um, and just a lot of different industries. And so I think that what has really changed too, is that you have technology and, um, research basically that, um, lets corporations know what works. What leads us to do irrational things? So this is sort of baked into a lot of things that we tend to get hooked on and overdue today. And so this uh, controlled, studied casino, probably not good for the public, correct? What they're going to find and utilize there? I can't imagine it's going to be used for good. Well, it's definitely used to make casinos uh, more money. So there's, you know, there's this, there's this larger argument that, I think we need to have that's um, engaging things that hold our attention are also fun things, mm -hmm. right? So if you can make a slot machine more fun, that makes it more fun for the player who comes in and spends their $40 and goes, oh, well, that was great. You know, whatever, I'm going to move on. It also makes things more addictive. So you're going to have a subset of the population that completely overdo things. And I think that this loop is also... It's kind of a fundamental part of addiction as a whole where there's a lot of randomness that goes into um, use, scoring drugs, and, you know, it's the repeatability cycle. And so I think and you the do flood find, of dopamine. Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't underestimate that. It's it's yeah. it's like whatever the delivery system is, is is really not as important as 
why am I seeking out this dopamine rush? Right. You know, what, it, what in my life do I not want to feel or face? Right. Uh, or is it, you know, is it trauma based and mm-hmm. it's, it has nothing to do with, um, you know, uh, logic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that, you know, people can get addicted to a lot of things. We tend to get more addicted to things that have an underlying level of unpredictability in them. And it mm-hmm. works. It's not just humans. All animals get fixated on predict on unpredictability. And, um, I think you're absolutely right that when something lapses into, you know, I personally think addiction is kind of a spectrum. It's like who the hell decides where the line is. It's a person with a clipboard and it's like, you ask clipboard a where it is and clipboard B where it is. They might draw it differently. Um, but to me, it's the question is, you know, is this behavior you're repeating over time starting to, um, really hurt your life in the long term, the sort of short term reward escape you're getting, whatever it is. Which is I think a great question to ask if you're if you're wondering, am I an addict or not? That's certainly one of the red flags is is yeah. it corroding yeah. areas of your life. Yeah. And I mean I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast, but it's like the DSM five, they don't even use the word addiction. And it's substance use disorder and there's, you know, there's eleven criteria and you go down the list and it's like, okay, well, if you have, I, I can't remember the exact numbers. If you meet one to four, you have a mild case. If you meet five to seven, you have a medium case. Seven or more, you have a extreme case or whatever it might be. And you can kind of plug and play a lot of stuff that you're like, man, this thing annoys me. I mean, you might have two with your habit with TikTok or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, wow, this is this actually makes you think, right? And then other behaviors, you know, you might be totally off the rails. And it's like an eight, you know, so. It's interesting too that, for many of us, unpredictability in our lives is terrifying, yet in playing something where there are constraints like a video game, the unpredictability is exciting because we know in a certain way what the limits of that are. You know, the game is not going to explode and hurt us. Mm-hmm. You know, a mugger isn't going to pop out of the top of the game and take our take our money, but we're participating and excited by not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. It's predictably unpredictable. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, games to me are really, you're kind of taking on this set of pain in the ass obstacles just to have uh, a set of pain in the ass obstacles. But the, in the end, you know exactly whether you've done the right or wrong thing. And it's this constrained thing that is away from your life. And it's um, black and white. There's something yeah. soothing about black and white. I think totally, totally. And in the book, um, since we're on this topic, I talk about how um, I talked to a researcher at uh, University of Utah who's a philosopher of games. His name is uh, T. Nguyen. And he thinks a lot about gamification and how it's put into behaviors that aren't separate and removed from our lives. So if you think about Clue, it's like if you and I play this game and you win, I'm not going to be actually mad, right? <laughs> this is like this separate thing from life. But now that you're seeing gamification put into a lot of different technology, whether it's the form of, you know, follower counts and likes and retweets or whether it's the points on your exercise band or whether it's even something like grades on this one to four scale, um, once you add these gamification elements into everyday life, it starts to change our behavior because we get fixated on the clarity of the number. And the competitiveness yeah. we use to identify our value as a person. Yeah, exactly. And that shifts your values of why you do the things you do, right? So if you think of something like uh, uh, Twitter, for example, 
you know, it builds itself as a platform for discussion, but the goals of a discussion are, there's a lot of them <laughs> to be understood, to understand, to empathize, to bitch, to commiserate, to have fun, to share all these different things. But when you, when you see how pe- people actually behave on Twitter, it's usually to get followers, to get retweets, to get likes, to humiliate someone. Well, the reason, the way that you get followers, likes, and retweets is by humiliating someone, by being controversial, by saying things that are going to, you know, rally one crowd and piss off another. And that's at odds with discussion, right? But you can apply this to all different sorts of things, grades. So what's the difference between somebody who is stating a truth that isn't popular, but they believe that truth and their intent isn't to get? followers and somebody who is just being inflammatory to get attention yeah well it kind of goes back to if you think about it from that loop i talked about what's the opportunity here i mean i think you can definitely use social media in a way that um you know aligns with certain goals but i think that the way that the um applications and systems are designed they incentivize the point scoring Mm -hmm. so whether or not people realize it they may you know it's like when i started instagram for example i read about this in the book it's embarrassing as hell is mm-hmm. when I start Instagram, I do it to share photos of my life with my college friends, with my family, like here's my dogs. But then when I start posting certain photos that get more likes and followers from people that I don't even know them, what do you think I start posting more of? <laughs> the shit that these random people on the internet seem to like because yeah. the number's bigger, right? right. And that changes um, not only how I'm using the app, but also in my case, how I'm living my life. So a good example is that I, uh, I do a lot of running in the desert cause that's like my meditation, mm-hmm. right? We live on the edge of the desert in Vegas. And once I started posting photos of my desert runs, they started getting more likes from these random people. Now running was my moving meditation. Well, now when I'm running, I'll come across a bend and instead of being like present aware, I'm like, oh man, that'd be a great photo for Instagram. Let me stop this run and just click. Right. So my mm-hmm. thinking has literally freaking changed. And uh, the philosopher I talked to said the same thing. He's like, when I start Twitter, I'm just using it, you know, whatever. And then I had a tweet go viral. And it was this idea I had. It was a short, funny, whatever idea. And he said that he started to find instead of when he would have a sort of interesting idea, instead of taking it all the way down the rabbit hole, which is what he has to do as a philosopher. That is his job. Right. Unpeel every freaking layer and see what's in there. Instead of doing that, his brain started to go, I wonder how I could put this in a 280 character tweet that might go viral again, because that felt great. Right. And so that changes his thinking and how he lives his life and does his job. So it sounds like this is probably an obvious question, but um, having mindfulness around what our intent is when we start an action or after we do an action uh, to go, well, what, what was my intent there? Because I think we can, Many of us can be really dishonest with ourselves about what our intent is. You know, maybe we lend we lend somebody money, and we're like, I want to help them, but maybe part of us wants to look good because we hope that they'll tell our group of friends that you know somebody helped me out financially, or you know, whatever whatever the reason is. But I think I think trying to be um, mindful of why we do things is such an important kind of kind of first step. Mm-hmm. What, let's talk about your life personally. What are what are some moments? You just shared one about the Instagram and the running. Um, are there other moments or things in your life where you told yourself, my intent was this, 
and you later kind of went, oh, well, maybe that's not completely true. Uh, or, or things from your book where yeah, that's kind of the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that happens a lot with people. We do things, you know, there's, there's all these different reasons we could do an act. And I think, um, you know, as much as we'd like to think everyone is all altruistic, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. And so there's, you know, some philosophers I talk to in the process of reporting this book just go, yeah, I don't really care why people donate just so long as they donate. Just like lean into the fact that you kind of want this little, you know, altruistic boost or whatever. Um, and maybe that's a that's a good point. I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, I'll say that um, I'll give you an example of something that um, where numbers have captivated sort of how I think and what I focus on is um, when you release a book, your publisher gets really like obsessed with the first week sales and pre-orders. So you spend a lot of time thinking about that and you can track it down to the freaking minute on these like Amazon author pages. And so the question is, well, why the hell did you write the book? It's like not to sell books, right? I wrote it to, you didn't, but I imagine a lot of people do. Yeah. A lot of people do, but you can get focused on that number. Like I write it to, hopefully improve people's lives. Maybe you get a piece of information that you go, oh, wow, I'm going to use that. And then your life changes in a positive way. That is so much harder to measure, right? Than like, where does the book rank in the whatever scale? Like that's so much clearer. But you, but by focusing too much on that, you often forget like, this is not why I wrote the book in the first place. And you can lose your eye. Your eye can go away from that ball. And it usually takes... You know, someone sending you a message saying, hey, I read your book, read it two times, and then I went and did this, and I lost X amount of pounds, or I stopped this behavior, or I had this conversation with a person in my life, and my life improved. And getting those is the best reminder. But if you don't get those messages, if people just keep that to themselves, then you kind of can focus on this stupid sales thing, which at a certain point, you need to make a living. Right. But, you know, it's it's a balance, so... So uh, your book contains uh, ways of of gaining awareness around Mm -hmm. uh, the scarcity brain and tips for how to manage it. Would manage be a correct verb? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, So especially with the loop that I talked about, that scarcity loop, I think that just becoming aware of its ability to capture our (laughs) – attention and drive behaviors into places we maybe don't want it to. I think that is a, that's kind of like the first step. It's like, uh, I had a good friend, Trevor Cashy, who put it this way. He said, you know, the dessert might be delicious, but once you find out that the secret ingredient is monkey brains, you don't really want to eat the dessert as much. Right. (laughs) Which is kind of how it is. Uh, and then the second part is that you can change or remove any of the three parts of the loop. And that will tend to reduce a behavior. So, for instance, so for instance, um, we'll take unpredictable rewards. For example, one of the reasons that cell phones are so rewarding is because of the colors, because there's this array of colors. Simply changing your phone to grayscale reduces how I didn't uh, even know you could do that. You can do that. Yeah, you can just type it in. If you can't find it on your phone, mm-hmm. um, you can just Google it, and um, that will reduce screen phone screen time because the phone all of a sudden becomes less inherently rewarding because colors drive action. Right. So an example, I 
pull up to a intersection and there's a big ass red sign, right? Mm -hmm. That red tells me to stop. So colors drive action and drive behavior. And once you take those away, you tend to see behaviors. And reduce. different colors drive different actions, like red and yellow drive uh, hunger, apparently, which is why McDonald's is that, yeah, is that color. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> you can take away the opportunity. So this is a simple trick that actually works, is if you have a food that you eat way too much of, just get it out of the damn house. Right? Or if it's social media, it's asking, like we talked about, it's like, why am I using this in the first place? And can you change what that reason is and really keep your eye on the ball? And then um, with quick repeatability, for example, people um, suffer from shopping too much, a lot of people. And a lot of shopping uh, sites sort of leverage the scarcity loop. I mean, it really is like this search for like, what's the item going to be that improves my life? What's the item going to be? Oh, there it is. Buy. Oh, that felt great. What's the next thing I can buy? Right. Um, even just putting boundaries, like I'm going to only buy things in person that slows down the repeatability because in general, the quicker a person can repeat a behavior, the more likely they will be to repeat the behavior. Good example is in, uh, the slot machines, when they removed the handles that increased the rate of play twofold, because it's just the act of having to pull the handle, having to let it come back up. It slowed things down. So they now have spin buttons. That might be the most depressing thing I've heard in the 12 years of doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah. People will oh. behave. So the another crazy, and this is, here's even more depressing since we're going down that hole. When you look at um, problem gamblers, people who are full blown have an issue with it. A lot of them get upset if they win a jackpot. What? A lot of them don't want to win jackpots because the point for them is not to win money. It's to play. It's to play the game. It's just to, they would rather have this long, slow, steady, just like be in the zone. And when you win over a thousand dollars, the machine locks itself up because you have to pay taxes on that a thing comes on. And then the, uh, you know, the casino floor guy comes and goes, okay, fill out this tax form. And it slows down the experience and takes them out of that experience. That's some crazy stuff. That is. I, I, I have a hard time believing that. No, it's, it's reported. Yeah. Wow. I, I can't recall ever being upset winning winning a jackpot. Well, it's because yeah. you don't have a gambling problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, so you're talking about people with a, with a gambling addiction. Legitimate gotcha. gambling addiction. I'm gotcha. not talking about everyday people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I and I think it's pretty obvious people that have a serious gambling problem. It's not about the winning. There's no, it's there's winning. it's yeah. it's about the immersive experience and mm -hmm. the I think the adrenaline of the unpredictability. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what else? Uh, people reading your book, what else can they uh, take away from it? Obviously, we don't want you to give your entire <laughs> your entire book away. Um, I'd say relevant to this podcast, there's a chapter on addiction. So to report that, uh, I went to Iraq, uh, Iraq is interesting because there wasn't that much addiction, uh, before the U S invasion, simply because Saddam ruled with an iron fist more or less. And then when, um, he was overthrown, you had, uh, a war that people had to live through and they didn't have a lot of outlets and there's not a lot of outlets for the trauma caused by war. And then in, I think it was 2017, 
Syria fell and basically became a narco state. And now most of their economy is um, revolves around producing a drug called Captagon. And it's sort of like this low-grade methamphetamine. I mean, the entire country, that's their main export now, is this illegal Captagon. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, it's. I mean, they find billions and billions of pills. In There's billions of pills moving around the Middle East. It's most popular in the Middle East. Um, and so you kind of have these three things where you have um, a population who's in pain. They don't have a lot of outlets for that pain, ways to productive ways to manage that pain. And then you have a substance that can quickly solve that pain that kind of comes in all yeah. at once. And um, to me, that's kind of the story of addiction, even though there's a lot of different theories around it. But I think those are kind of the three things that you need. And obviously genetics factor in and all these different things factor right. in. But I think that's kind of the main driver. Yeah, it seems it seems like uh, a situation where you can go, yeah, these are the commonalities in, a, in a, a lot of addiction. You know, I'm sure there are people who are addicts who didn't have um, traumatic experiences in childhood. I've met, I've met many of them, but most of the people that I know that suffer from addiction, there's some type of childhood trauma or neglect or some some kind of hole in their soul that that drugs uh, distract from. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll take, so I've been sober for nine years. Oh, kudos. And yeah, it's a good nine years. Um, for me, I didn't have a traumatic childhood. Um, I had, play, you know, some people have theorized that uh, addiction is a lack of connection. Felt plenty connected. I had a lot of friends. For me, it was very much that uh, I'm drawn to extreme experiences. And I had pretty boring job. I was living in a town that was pretty boring. And for me, drinking just, you know, it was like, well, this is a new, I can have a new intense extreme experience in an easy way through alcohol. And having to sort of uncover that, um, and it's taken me a while to realize, oh, that's why you drank. It's like, oh, no wonder now when you need to report a section on addiction, you go to Iraq and not like Ohio, right? <laughs> um having to sort of uh, understand that, but then find a more productive way to deal with that need for like extremes, uh, I think has been, I don't know, it's been kind of a journey, you know? Yeah. Uh, when you go on runs, how long do you go for? Uh, I'll go for like 10 miles or so. Yeah, that's pretty far. I, you know, not that I'm saying, oh, that's that's addictive at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, our, uh, our friend uh, we were talking about goes on 100, yeah. 100 mile <laughs> yeah. runs. Um, I've done some long, I think exercise to help. Um, yeah. I definitely, I mean, I always was active, but I would say my exercise definitely ramped up in intensity and duration, right. um, after I got sober and yeah, having to sp spending more time outside, um, yeah, doing things that I think are, have, a, uh, have some of that level of extremes and unpredictability embedded in them but in a way that, you know, won't lead me to wake up and go, where's my car? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that's a, I think that's a better use of way to scratch that itch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to share before, uh, before we wrap up uh, just to plug the book again, it's called a scarcity brain. Yeah. Um, no, I write about all kinds of topics related to health and psychology and I have a newsletter that goes out once okay. every or three times a week and yeah you can find some of my stuff there and yeah the book's called scarcity brain and where can people find you on social media uh at 
Where can people obsessively scroll your stuff on Just social obsessively media? obsessively scroll it and yeah. go look at those uh, run photos yes. that I regret, <laughs> but I can't stop posting. <laughs> um, I thank you for your honesty about about that. You know, a lot of times we get authors on here who kind of seem to, you know, don't have any issues they're struggling with. They got it all figured out and they're <laughs> writing their book from the top of the mountain. But uh, nice to have you in the valley with us. Well, everyone's in the valley, whether or not you you know you say so or not. So it, there is a chapter, and we're kind of—I know you're, we're closing—but there's a chapter in the book about how we evolved to crave status. And what was what was a fun, fascinating takeaway for me is the research on status lagged so far behind all the other research, and the reason for that is because the worst thing that you can do for your status. Is telling others that you care about your status, your right. rank in society. Right. So you had all these researchers who go, well, if I start studying that, that implies that I think that this is important, which means that I'm admitting that I care about my status. It wasn't until the 1990s when a researcher came in and goes, actually, I think that we can look at this in a way about, um, I think it was over diversity issues or something like that. And that seemed like the, that was like, oh, this is the acceptable way to start studying this. And that set off the research as a whole. So, so looking cool can be measured. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Uh, and did you say where we can find you on social media? Uh, Michael underscore Easter. Okay. Uh, we'll put the links to uh, all your stuff in the show notes for the episode. Uh, kudos on the book and thanks for coming by, man. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Michael Easter. We are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This is from the Fears survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lego My Mego and uh, share something you fear. And she writes, I fear I will never be able to trust anyone with my daughter. I'm terrified my fear of losing control will destroy my relationship with her father and his family. Uh, I also think it could, I don't know if destroy is the right word, but it could really negatively impact your daughter. I don't know why I pronounced the word daughter, your daughter. Um, yeah, o- overly protective helicoptering. If you've never listened to the episode with Fred Stoller, listen to that one. That He talks about growing up with a mother who was uh, just filled with fear and you know terrified every time he walked out the front door. Uh, continuing, I need to know every detail of when I'm not with her. She's 14 months and I've yet to let my mother-in-law watch her. If I'm not with her, all I can think about is all the awful things that could happen to her. The hardest part is my mother-in-law is always bringing up wanting to watch her while we go out or keep her overnight and the thoughts of it literally make me sick. I've been accused of trying to keep her from people and it's already causing issues with my husband. I feel like I just need more time. Am I the crazy one here? Uh, I, I don't like the word crazy in uh, relation to that. Um, a, a better way that I would phrase it is, do I have a part in this? And I would say from the information that you've shared here is that it sounds like, yes, you definitely do. I mean, if there were signs you know, that could be verified by other people that w- there was abuse going on 
with the mother-in-law or the mother-in-law had a history of, of being abusive. I think that might be a different situation, but you don't mention it here. So, um, I, I really think that it would be good for your relationship with everybody, your daughter, your husband, your mother-in-law, um, that you begin talking to a mental health professional, um, but I really appreciate you sharing that and the fact that you are open to the idea that there might be something going on within you um, that's distorting reality. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Static Thoughts, and they write, Driving on the highway near dusk and all the streetlights turn on simultaneously as far as the eye can see. I love that one. The way my dog never gives up hope that her geriatric feline sisters will one day not loathe her to their core. That day has not come. When I'm able to fully connect with my children and we all in those moments completely see and hear each other like we are part of the same collective being. Wow, is that beautiful. Thank you for those. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Ampersand Soup, and I believe we've read uh, some of her surveys before. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 20s, uh, says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Um, yes, and I never reported it, and also some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And she writes, my mom molested me as a child for years. She was completely inappropriate towards me sexually throughout my life. But the most extreme was when I was youngest, like uh, one to three years old. She was very drunk every time it happened and also a chronic sleepwalker. I don't even know if she was truly awake or remembered any of it. She was like a zombie. I feel like I carry this memory and she never had to. What happened to me didn't fit the narrative or descriptions described to me as typical sexual abuse. She was my mom. How the fuck did this happen? I didn't even allow myself to think about it for years. I knew it was inappropriate, but felt so guilty telling anyone or even letting myself think about it. I didn't understand how a woman could hurt her daughter sexually at the time. As I got older, and understood better what had happened to me, I felt like a liar, like I'd misinterpreted what had happened. I still feel that way a lot. There's a deep shame that hollows me out, of, that hollows me out even typing this. Boy, do I relate a lot to what you experienced. My mom was, was not drunk, but in terms of carrying the memory and how we feel about it and kind of having a hard time wrapping the head around uh, how a mom could do this. It's so much easier for us to understand a man doing it because we hear about that so often. But one of the things that, that I have seen talking to dozens and dozens of people, whether it's you know through support groups online or in person, um, or corresponding with listeners is that very often when moms sexually abuse, 
it's more covert. It's often disguised in the way that they care for their children's bodies. Um, you know, showing an interest in um, their health and well-being. And the, the child doesn't understand that. But when they get older, they begin to, to question it. And many of us bury it for decades and decades and explain away each single event and then one day the pattern of it hits us and we can no longer explain it away and give weight to what happened and not to throw the parent under the bus but to stop throwing ourselves under the bus by minimizing it so that we can process it. Uh, continuing, she died last month and I feel like uh, she'll know if I tell anyone. I don't want her to know. I'm also queer. I'm attracted to women, but I feel so disgusted, wondering where the root of that attraction may have come from. I never act on any feelings towards women. I wish I could, but it's too much to bear. She had borderline personality disorder. She did anything to keep me around, to keep me from leaving. I wonder if she pushed that boundary to keep me under her control. I hope it was some freakishly horrible trauma response and she really was sleepwalking, maybe reenacting her own childhood trauma. I don't know what happened to her as a kid, but I suspect she was sexually abused. Um, boy, the survivors that I've talked to, and myself included, there is no question in our lives that we would want an answer to more than what was going through their mind when it happened. How conscious were they of it? And what was their opinion on what they were doing? Were they justifying it? Did they know it was wrong? What were they getting out of it? Um It's over now and she's gone. I told my therapist about all of this when I was 15. I've been getting treatment for PTSD. I still panic waking up thinking she's in my bed. I've never told anyone else. I've been with my boyfriend for over two years and I feel like I waited too long to say anything. I wake up screaming with night terrors and I can't even tell him what they're about. By the way, if you are interested uh, in a support group... Um, People who have experienced uh, childhood or adolescent sexual violations by a mother or a female caregiver, shoot me an email uh, at mentalpod uh, at gmail.com and I can uh, connect you if you're interested. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, my mom tried strangling me three separate times. She pinned me against the wall and wrapped her hands around my neck until I managed to get away. I'm stronger than her, so I always managed to break away before losing consciousness. Wow. This happened when I was 14 and 15 years old. I forget it happened. I'm confused why I never said anything after. Why I just pretended it didn't happen. Why didn't I get angry? The first time it happened, she was sleepwalking after drinking. She came to as her hands were wrapping tighter around my throat, pinning me against the wall. I broke away, horrified, asking, what are you doing? 
She locked me in the spare room for the rest of the night and told me I was out of control. Boy, that's some projecting. I was completely confused and so sad. I didn't understand what I had done. The next two times, she was awake but drunk. I broke away both times, and she was arrested the third time. My dad saw it happen but told the police it didn't when they asked the next morning. I remember the pure fear I felt as I looked her in the eyes with her hands around my neck. It was violating and it hurt my feelings most. After each instance, I just pretended it didn't happen. I would not think about it again until much later. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Yes, and that's in caps. My mom was my abuser and just being my mom really tacked on some extra weight. Uh, she would shower me with extreme love and affection and gifts. She was loving and wanted to be a good mom, but she was so sick. She never got help for her BPD. She was obsessed with me in a way that really hurt me. And I think this is such a good example of the fact that there can be a huge continuum of the healthiness of attention. So often, I think we look back and say, but my parent paid so much attention to me, but what was the quality of that attention? Was it invasive, boundaryless? And, you know, um, did it feel smothering? And I think you get what I'm saying. Darkest thoughts. I thought about killing my mom and dad. I thought about killing myself. I always end up thinking about her during sex. It's awful. It's invasive and intrusive and can't shake it once it happens. I also think about slicing open my skin too much. Darkest secrets. I've told one person about the sexual abuse I experienced with my mom. Even then, I never told any details, only vague, cryptic ramblings to my therapist. I'm queer. I like girls, boys, and everyone in between, but I haven't told my current boyfriend of two years or any of my college friends. When I moved away for college, I just told people I was straight, and it was easier. Now I feel trapped and like I lost myself. I live in a very supportive area, but went too long not saying anything. I had a serious self-harm issue for most of the teen years and early 20s. I was actually addicted and really hurting myself for a long time. I'm doing better now, but still struggle with resisting urges every single day. It's exhausting. Only my therapist knows. I'm sure other people have inferred from scars, but I never address them. I feel so bad not telling my partner, but also don't know what to say. I'm really closed off as a person, and just talking about heavy stuff is so hard. I wonder, and I don't know, I'm not a therapist, but I wonder if if you're listening, um, playing this audio of me reading your survey, not for what I say, but for what you've written down for your therapist, and then getting your therapist's feedback on possibly sharing it with your boyfriend. And I'm not saying you should absolutely do these things, but it's something to consider because... Um, here you have the words that you want to say written in a way that's not apologetic. Um, and filtered. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. And I'm not saying also that you have to 
or should share everything in this survey. Um, Lesbian fantasies are my default. I am much more attracted to women than men. Sex with men is fine, and I usually have a great time, but nothing like the thought of girls. It makes me feel a little helpless being in a relationship with a man. I feel like a fraud, like I'm ignoring myself. I want to tell more people I'm not straight, but it's scary and heavy. Boy, I really hope you can get to the place where you can share that and claim your authenticity. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I tell my boyfriend about my sexuality. I haven't told him, and we've been dating for over two years. We live together. I feel like at this point I'm just lying to him, but also waited too long. I'll tell him I'm working on it. Good for you. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for health. I've been struggling with my health lately, and it's sucking the life out of me, and I'm so broke. Also, money. I need money. I just want to be rich. Have you shared these things with others? I've told my best friend, but it was when we were in high school. After I moved away for college, I stopped telling people. It was freeing and felt great, but I also felt like I had to hold up a certain image, like I had to be the gay friend. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels freeing, but also a reminder that I got to tell people these things. It's just ridiculous not to. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, it's not that big of a deal. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. This is an email that I got from Mrs. Sandra Hasib, and uh, she writes, Dear Apple Beneficiary, as part of our end-of-year reward program, I've been mandated by the Apple Board of Directors to inform you that you have been chosen as one of the three lucky beneficiary in this Apple end-of-year reward. You have been rewarded with the latest iPhone 14 Pro Max and a check worth $750,000 U.S. dollars. This year's program was designed to show appreciation to our numerous customers all over the world. To receive your package, you are hereby required to contact the claims agent slash representative whose details are given below. And it's a guy named Dr. David Smith that I am to contact. Um, Well, I was really torn about what to do. So I talked to a lawyer. um, I talked to Interpol and the person who paints on my eyebrows. And I got different answers from each person. Um, One person said um, that you should definitely trust David Smith because he's a doctor. And they also informed me that my interpretation of the word mandated was not actually its definition. Um, I had always thought mandated means that you were ordered to do something by a man that you dated. And apparently that is, that is not the case. Uh, somebody else said that you should definitely not get the Pro Max. Because even though the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars is tempting, that the 
the Promax is a, and this is in their words, a hot can of garbage and it should come with a fish bone poking out of it. And then the third person said there's a huge plus to this. And that is if you take this iPhone Pro Max, it is a great way to support child labor. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a trans man who I believe we've read some of his surveys before. Uh, he calls himself Confused Turtle, identifies as pansexual. He's in his 20s and says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And boy, would I say, uh, at least from what I remember of this, it was way more than slightly dysfunctional. Uh, he has been the victim of sexual abuse. One time reported it, and another time some stuff happened, but he doesn't know if it counts. Uh, so I know I was sexually assaulted at least once. I got very drunk alone at a bar, uh, parentheses, my friend had left for the night. And the next thing I remember, I woke up on the side of the road pantsless and was very disoriented and couldn't figure out where I was. In my disoriented state, I flagged down a passing van for help. I got in the van and asked the driver to take me to the gas station that I saw up the road. He proceeded to tell me I owed him for the ride and put his hand on my genitals. Wow. Back-to-back assaults. How does that not affect your view of humanity? Uh, I froze in fear and began crying. The details following are fuzzy, but I ended up being able to get out of the van and go to the gas station. Cops were called and I was taken to the hospital for a rape kit. The cops were largely unfriendly and wanted to Baker Act me, but the nurses were good and could see that I was, in fact, in my right mind and not making up stories. Nothing ever came from the rape kit that I know of, and when I called the police station for updates, they, quote, magically, unquote, didn't have a record of me at all. Thanks for the help, guys. So I don't know what happened or why I was pantsless, but I can imagine it wasn't wasn't because I thought I was streaking at 2 a.m. was a fun idea. Uh, he is not sure if he has been emotionally or physically abused, and I would say definitely, because he writes, my mother is a very intense person. She has always been. She has untreated and diagnosed ADHD and possibly OCD, but has been on and off medication for a while. Growing up, my earliest memory of her was her deep cleaning the tile in my childhood home with a to toothbrush. I was still a toddler, but I wanted to help her out, so I walked over to her. She proceeded to yell at me for interrupting her, so I cried. She's never been really good with emotions, so whenever I had strong feelings, it would pretty much always end up in a screaming match. She wanted to homeschool me, and that led to many more screaming matches because I learned differently 
and she did, and we never saw eye-to-eye on lessons. It's worth noting, too, that a big motivator for her homeschooling me was because she was deeply religious at the time and didn't want outside influence on me. It's interesting, too, by the way, that this survey happened to be almost back-to-back with the one that I read about the woman asking, am I crazy um, for wanting to uh, protect my daughter? Uh, there were times where she got so angry, angry with me for my frustrations that she would physically assault me. She pinned me up against the wall and screamed in my face. Eventually, as I got to my high school years, we mutually agreed that I would move to an online learning platform and teach myself, which I had pretty much been doing anyway, since I would rather teach myself than get in another fight. Eventually, I developed bipolar disorder and had a suicide attempt that the hospital reported to my parents. That ensued a lot of terrible things. My mother decided that I clearly tried to kill myself because of her and would sit me down and drill me with questions that I was not comfortable answering. I was also fairly deep into self-harm. So at 18 years old, my mother decided to do, quote, body checks, unquote, and would make me strip down nearly naked in front of her. She would routinely use this opportunity to comment on my butt and how nice it was, and nice is in in, uh, quotes. Uh, They also took the liberty of removing my door so I had no privacy. I was financially unable to leave, but uh, but if I had the means or mental well-being, I would have left but I felt trapped. When I was 19, my mom decided to get me off of the medication I was on at the time and, quote, help, unquote, me by kicking me out. She offered to co-sign an apartment and pay first month's rent. Then I was on my own. I tried to make it work, but I lapsed deeper into the bipolar swings and self-harm. I did eventually get help mostly on my own accord at 24. I think my parents aren't bad people, but I think they both have serious issues they are not dealing with. Any positive experiences with abuser? Uh, Oh yeah, my folks would take us on trips, and at times they are very nice and helpful. They've bailed me out of situations financially in the past, in the parentheses, and currently since I lost my job, uh, which are objectively good things. It's just they also like to put a lot of red tape around their good deeds to kind of string along the deal. Yeah, that definitely complicates it. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I have a loving boyfriend and a wonderful little cat child. I'm stable and I'm doing the best I have been in years. But even though I am happy, I fantasize about suicide often. I don't really feel as though I'd act on it at this point, but it's my go-to fantasy when life gets rough darkest secrets. During my bouts of mania and depression, I've said pretty horrific things to past friends that cost me their friendship. I really wasn't in my right mind at the time, and I don't even fully remember what I said, but knowing that I so deeply hurt people who cared about me is not a great thing to live with. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, being objectified. I was objectified a lot when I was growing up, and then parentheses, probably due to growing growing up female in the church. 
into parentheses. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to tell my mom exactly what she did to hurt me, but I know she would deny it, and her denial would hurt me more. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I was able to be completely financially independent from my parents. I have a very steady job. Uh, I had a very steady job two months ago and was laid off. So now I'm back on the route of being dependent on them again. I hate being under their thumb. Have you shared these things with others? Kind of? Question mark. I've shared bits and pieces with my boyfriend, but I remember these things in waves, and it's usually fragmented memories. So I've shared some things as they were relevant, but not everything. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved. I was watching a documentary that sparked memories of things from the past, and I didn't want to burden my real-life friends and family with it. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you figure out what all this means, please share it with me because I have no idea how to feel about all of it. Thank you for that. And I got to say, from all of the stuff that you've shared, it makes sense that you are feeling confused and I don't, untethered. I don't know if that applies, but I know. A lot of us who have experienced similar things, it's a feeling of where is the truth? And it's so overwhelming. But I believe if we keep on getting help and opening up, we can begin to make sense of it. I really do. And finally, this is uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself... I I could hate myself for not thinking of a name. And uh, they write, Hey, Paul, I have two moments that I thought of sharing with you. Three years ago, I was unintentionally pregnant. I live in Germany, so abortion is possible with some process behind it. Actually, it is officially without legal prosecution, but not per se legal. My problem was that it was December and I had gotten some Christmas money. So even though I earned very little that month, I was 100 euros over the amount of income. That ensures the bill will be covered by insurance. So not having that kind of money, I had to wait. I spent Christmas with an old friend of mine. And even though we were close, in some respects, we weren't. I didn't tell her what condition I was in. I just wanted to be distracted and get through the days because I was already going through a lot of symptoms and it was hard keeping it together and I also hadn't told the guy. By coincidence, she had a running gag over the holidays as she watched some YouTube video that made fun of people misspelling the word pregnant. And several times a day, she would just shout out loud from somewhere in the flat, Pregante! Good fucking Lord. And then uh, her second one. A few years previous, I had stayed in a psychosomatic clinic for two months. In Germany, there are, there are some that are quite nice, but I can't say it helped me that much in retrospect, other than giving me some time out. And having a not-so-ideal relationship with my mother. 
i.e. parentification. I suggested to her also to give it a go. Maybe it would help her. So sometime later, she actually went. It was close to the Alps, kind of rural and remote. I told her that there was a small cafe in an old farmhouse some villages over with an eccentric elderly man that lived there with his parrot and some other exotic animals serving really good apple strudel and coffee. I used to go there with other patients on the weekends, so I thought she might enjoy it too. Jump forward in the story. My mother left my father after 30 years of marriage for the man with the parrot. Oh, during the vows, was the parrot on his shoulder? (laughs) Thank you for those. Oh, oh, those made me laugh. Those made me laugh. Uh, I'm going to end the show with a little bit of my music. I hope you enjoy it. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, um, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening.